Every time I read them, these words, only four words in our English translations, every time I read them, they cause my soul to shudder. And they ought to cause your soul to shudder too. The four words, not rich toward God. They're found in Luke chapter 12 and verse 21. Words of Jesus concerning a man that he called a fool because he did not make adequate preparation for eternity. And his life showed a disregard for others. You remember the story after having a bumper crop, the crop of all crops as a farmer, he thought about building bigger barns when he was already rich. And the Lord called him a fool and said, This night your soul will be taken from you. Not rich toward God. Stop and think about the fact that a person can have a great deal of ability and still not be rich toward God. They can have a world of talent. They can have a world of brains. They can have a lot of wealth, as did this man, and still not be rich toward God. But let me get more specific. I wonder if there are not preachers of whom the Lord would say the same thing, not rich toward God. I wonder if there are shepherds of the flock that ultimately God's view of them might be far different than the reputation among many that the Lord himself might say, not rich toward God. I wonder how many people in the body of Christ might be considered faithful in the eyes of many. They're there every time the doors are open. They'll teach Bible class and they will support the work of the church. But the Lord who knows our hearts says, not rich toward God. If there's anything in the world that I want... While I live and breathe, I want to be rich toward my God. And I want you to be as well. The congregation that hosts Focal Point was gracious enough to put me up in a motel. And upon arriving there, I saw an older couple. And by older, I mean 12 to 15 years older than I am. I saw an older couple... And had, they had in their truck all kinds of things for little people, for a baby. They're obviously in their 70s, but they have a truck full of baby things. Parents of little ones, you know what it's like to travel with a little one. You might even forget your own clothes, but you have to take everything that little person might need. Their tundra was full of baby things. And I noticed as I would go to breakfast every day that couple doting over this little baby. First thing I noticed about that baby 
flowing dark hair. I guess I just noticed those things. But beautiful dark hair, Brother Clay, beautiful child. I, I asked how old the baby was, and she was six months old. And I would see every morning at breakfast, I would see a man in a mechanized wheelchair, the grandfather, gently rocking and playing with that baby girl. I would see every day grandma gently taking that baby from place to place and making sure that six-month-old child had everything that she needed. The last day I was there, I decided, you know, I just want to commend this couple. I mean, here they are in their 70s, well into their 70s, and they are doting, loving grandparents. For those of us who are grandparents, one grandchild can wear you out, and amen there. But here they are in their 70s, giving just beautiful, loving care to this child. And I wanted to commend them. And I just happened to meet the grandmother who had the baby in a stroller as I was leaving on the elevator. Almost didn't have the opportunity to ask. And I said, you know, I really appreciate the love you're giving this child. All week, I haven't been stalking you, but I couldn't help but notice how sweet you were to her. And tears started going down her cheeks. And I said, what have I done to myself? And then she said, this little girl is everything to us. This baby is everything to us. A few months ago, her mother was stabbed to death. She was in the home, the baby was at the time. And she is all we have left of our daughter. We live in California, but we've come to the Austin area to try to get custody of our granddaughter because we want to give her the love that she's going to need. And our prayer, sir, is that we can live long enough for her to know how much her grandparents loved her. I wish every child had somebody in their life like that. Who's your inner circle? Who's your inner circle? Who are the people in your life that are your go-to people when it comes to being richer toward God? Who encourages you? Who helps you in that regard? I suspect many of us have go-to people when we have physical needs, but I want to say to you, The Lord chose three men. Now, if the Lord of heaven and earth, while here on earth, chose people as part of his inner circle, there may be some wisdom in us having an inner circle too. The problem with too many preachers and the problem with too many elders that I have known through the years is that there is a conspicuous lack 
of an inner circle spiritually. That is dangerous. Nobody in all the church is more dangerous than a preacher or an elder who has lost their relationship with God and who has no inner circle to encourage him in the right direction. That man's dangerous to the church. As dangerous as any false teacher. Now, go to your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Look at verses 9 through 12. A principle is set forth by the wise man in this book. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, the Word of God says two is better than one because you get a better return for your labor. The passage goes on to say if one falls, another is there to help them up. Think about all of these things in Ecclesiastes 4 and apply that to one's inner circle, spiritually speaking. The return is better when others have invested in us so that we could become richer in God. If we fall, someone else in our life might be there to help us get up. And then it goes on to say a cord of three strands or many strands in some uh, translations is not easily broken. The Lord... If ever there was someone who walked this earth who didn't really need the assistance of other human beings, I suspect it would be Jesus. But the Lord not only chose 12, the Lord especially chose three, Peter, James, and John, to be the closest of the close. In the time that we have tonight... And the sermon, the lesson may well extend to next Sunday night. But what I want to do is look at three observations. Observations concerning the Lord's inner circle. Observation number one. This was especially important to Jesus. And an inner circle should be especially important to us. Observation number two, I'd like to offer some humble suggestions for the type of individuals to include in your inner circle. And then observation number three, insights. Insights about our inner circle that we need to keep in mind. Observation number one, the special importance of an inner circle. The Lord had one. I think it is a marvelous and important concept for us to implement. Peter, James, and John are specifically mentioned as being with Jesus apart from the other apostles on three occasions. Now, you may think about Andrew. Andrew is a little bit of an odd duck. He's part of the inner four. He was present when Peter's mother-in-law was healed in Mark chapter 1. He was present, it seems, in Luke chapter 5, along with other fishermen, when the Lord provided a miraculous catch. He's present in Mark chapter 13, when Jesus says of the temple of Jerusalem, not one stone will be left standing upon the other. 
He's present with Peter, James, and John. But he's not present with them in the three instances, important ones, that we'll see from Scripture. He's with the other eight. Let's look at the first instance. Turn to Luke chapter 8, look at verses 40 through 56. Luke 8, 40 through 56. This is two miracles at approximately the same time. It's a wondrous story. A woman who had an issue of blood, a blood flow problem, and she'd had it for 12 years. And the Word of God tells us she had exhausted all of her money seeing doctors trying to get help. And she says to herself, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I'll be whole. A healing takes place as she touches Jesus. Then, the other miracle. That of Jairus' daughter who is aged 12. When you look at Luke 8, 40-56, you have this urgency... I mean, the idea of Jairus' daughter, she's near death. The woman had been sick for 12 years, and yet Jesus intentionally delays to help teach this woman and to relate to this woman after her being healed. So much so that when you look at Luke 8, here's what happens. Jairus' daughter dies. I've done a lot of funerals, but no funeral is harder than the loss of a child. They're all tough, but the loss of a child. Jesus goes to that home, and the first thing he says... Now think about this, because in the Jewish culture, there would be mourners present, and they were already there. They had seen dead bodies before, and mourners were present... And when Jesus arrives, he said, this girl is not dead. She is only sleeping. And they laughed at him scornfully, mockingly. We know the rest of the story. What I want you to see is all three of these special instances say a lot about Jesus and all three of these special instances when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus say a lot about death. Luke 8, 40-56 says Jesus is the Lord over death. That He is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. 25. He's the life. That's who He is. And He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Turn, if you will, now to Mark chapter, rather Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Look at verses 1 through 8. The second instance when Peter and James and John are taken and are given a special glimpse into Jesus and who he is, this inner circle, is the Mount of Transfiguration. But before we look at Matthew 17, 1 through 8, we need to go back to Matthew 16. 
Matthew 16 has to do with the great confession. Remember verses 13 through 20? The great confession made by Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A beatitude is given by Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father that's in heaven. As Jesus spoke of the cross in Matthew 16, notice verses 21 and following. In speaking of the cross, Peter says, Lord, be it far from you. May it never be. How can this be so with you? 21 and following. The answer is found in Matthew 17, 1 through 8. In Matthew 17, 1 through 8, now they are present at the Mount of Transfiguration. And you have Moses present, representing the law, Elijah present, representing the prophets, and there they are discussing the future with Jesus, and in particular, his death. The Lord of death is discussing his planned and imminent death with Moses and Elijah. The apostles that are there, Peter, James, and John, Peter especially is caught up in the scene and he's wanting to erect an altar to Jesus and one to Moses and one to Elijah and God intervenes. He was so caught up in the moment he didn't see things as he should have. You know what? Peter, James, and John are the poster child, the poster children for many preacher sins and elder sins. They are the Mount Rushmore of sins for preachers and elders and church members. Now I'm going to tell you why. Fear. Peter, think of his fears. It's what led to him denying Jesus, isn't it? Matthew 26. Think about in Matthew chapter 14 when he starts to sink in the water. Fear. Do fears sometimes keep you from being rich toward God? Secondly, impulsiveness. It's amazing how some of us as Christians can say just the right thing at the right time and how sometimes we say the dumbest thing at the dumbest time when we shouldn't have said anything at all. Wasn't Peter like that sometimes? From you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord, what are you talking about with the cross? You don't really know what you're talking about, Jesus. A little more about James and John, but how about presumption and power plays? That's common not only among preachers and elders, it's common throughout congregations. Presumption and power plays to get one's way. What God does is He obscures the vision of Peter, James, and John, and as He speaks, He says, This is my beloved Son. 
in whom I am well pleased, hear him. If in that first account in Luke 8, Jesus is the life, in this account, Matthew 17, Jesus is the truth. He is the one concerning whom Moses and Elijah and the prophets spoke. The prophet like unto Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The suffering servant. And they talk about Jesus approaching death. His exodus. Incident number three. Turn to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14 that was read uh, at least partially by David Truitt earlier. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in the garden. And he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now, before we look at Mark 14, go back to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Because on this occasion, in Mark 10, also recorded... In Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, Let my boys be seated at your right hand and left hand in the kingdom. Remember that one? They get their mama to do it. Though undoubtedly it's their desire. And it's a power play. It's subtle. Especially if you think that Jesus might have been related to this family. And many Bible scholars think that he was related to them in the flesh. Anyway, the question of Jesus is significant. Are you able to drink the cup? And their response is the height of presumption. We are able And Jesus says, you'll indeed drink the cup, but to sit at my right and my left hand is not mine to give, but my Father's up above. Something to think about. Jesus is the Lord over death as he raises Jairus' daughter. Jesus speaks to Moses and to Elijah of his imminent impending death there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus voluntarily will drink the cup in Mark 14. He'll drink the cup. He is praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup from me well if we've seen him as the life when he raises Jairus' daughter as the truth there on the mount of transfiguration that Moses and Elijah pale in comparison to Jesus when you look here in Mark 14 he is the way there's no other way for salvation to come to us apart from the death of Jesus The drinking of the cup. And if that sounds anything like the way, the truth, and the life, I suspect it's because God intended it to be like that. John 14, 6. 
He willingly volunteers to drink the cup of death. We'll close as we bring this first observation, the importance of an inner circle. The Lord was teaching His inner circle some lessons. Generally speaking, we want our inner circle to help teach us lessons in getting to be richer toward God. Think of how this would work out. Each of the three would drink the cup. James is the first recorded apostle to die in Acts chapter 12, about 44 A.D. Peter's death is mentioned by Jesus in John 21, as well as in Peter's own letters, 1 and 2 Peter. Most Bible students think he lived about 20 years longer than James. And then there's John. John would live approximately seven decades more after the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. And for people who think you get old enough to retire from the Lord's work, John is the perfect example to remember. Don't stop too soon. It may just be that God is saving some of his best work for you to be at the end of your life. Think inner circle. A person that is alone and has no one to whom they're very close is a person that is easy pickings for Satan. Jesus had an inner circle, do you? Who's in your inner circle? And how are they helping you be rich toward God? Lord willing, next Sunday evening, we'll look at some humble suggestions for people to include, people types to include in your inner circle, and then some insights about an inner circle that will help you for the rest of your days. Thank you for listening. Whether one has an inner circle or not has bearing but is not the bottom line to where you are with Jesus. There's a bearing that others can have in encouraging you to be rich toward God, but ultimately you must make the choice yourself to be rich toward God. Peter could not make that for James and John. John could not make it for James and Peter. We must make that choice because of His love and grace. Come to Jesus. He shed His blood for us. We should commit our lives to Him. In faith, Romans 10, 17... In repentance, Acts 3.19. And in baptism, Acts 2.38. The Word of God knows nothing, nothing 
of a person who is right with God who is not baptized into Christ. One does not put on Christ apart from baptism. Galatians 3, 27. For those of us who are Christians, I say this kindly, we will not get to heaven alone. We will not get to heaven apart from what Jesus has done. And I suspect no one gets to heaven apart from the work others do in helping us to become richer toward God. Let us stand and sing.